Joining me this morning to talk about what's been another very busy week in politics is the Vancouver Suns' Vaughn Palmer and the Globe and Mail's Gary Mason. Later in the show, we'll talk about freedom of information and political fundraising with Mount Royal journalism professor and no stranger to BC Poly, Sean Holman. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful morning here in Kamloops. A lot to talk about this week. Happy to be joined by Vaughn Palmer and Gary Mason to discuss it all. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane, and good morning, Gary. Good morning, both of you. <laughs> and I hope, Vaughn and Gary, you guys keep your competitive juices uh, under control. <laughs> Oh, I, I know better than to compete with Vaughn. along, it's still, he's an old friend. <laughs> all right, guys, off the top, a big story we broke here at uh, Radio NL this morning. Uh, we all know that John Horgan promised to expedite the four-laning of the number one highway between Kamloops and the Alberta, bar, Alberta border as part of the campaign. Uh, we've learned, uh, thanks to procurement documents, that uh, the next phase, which according to former Transportation Minister Todd Stone, was shovel-ready uh, between Hoffman's Bluff and Chase is now going to be delayed by at least two years, uh, if not longer. Uh, is this just a case, Vaughn, of, of so much money available in the kitty and too many projects? Uh, one of the oldest rules in B.C. politics, Shane, is if you want to get your road paved, you better make sure you got a government member. Uh, I haven't quite finished checking the electoral maps this morning, but I don't think that there are any NDP ridings along the route of the Trans-Canada Highway uh, until you get to Surrey. <laughs> well, um, no, I mean, I think you're quite right. This government has made a hell of a lot more promises than they can keep within the confines of the budget. And they've got a lot of big capital projects they want to build that aren't in NDP, that, sorry, that aren't in B.C. Liberal writings. And I would not be surprised to see this interior highway project uh, delayed. They, they do that, right? They, they still say they're building it, but instead of it taking two years, it takes four. Gary, you were here in Kamloops covering uh, the campaign. Uh, you heard John Horgan and his big promise on the highway. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I certainly concur with Vaughn and and you. I, I think it, it is a, it is a question of uh, they have made a lot of uh, uh, spending promises and they just don't have the money, so they're scaling back. I mean, I think the Massey the Massey Tunnel replacement project is a classic example of them uh, looking for ways to save some money uh, so they can pay for other promises. But I have to say, Shane, I listened to your interview with the, the, the transportation minister, and I was kind of amused at how she was saying, on the one hand, she's committed to accelerating the project, while on the other hand, kind of admitting that it's going to be delayed. So um, I think there's going to be, uh, I think a lot of the ministers in this government are going to have to get good at uh, double speak because they, they have made way more promises than they have money to um, meet those promises so this is a classic example of that yeah and uh, i'll play a little snippet of the interview right now and it's when i, I asked claire trevena if uh, how a two-month sort of delay in transitioning to the ndp government results in a delay of two years or more in a highway project this is her answer Two months delay puts back a lot of work. The ministry was being in, it was an interregnum from effectively April when the writ was dropped through to July when uh, the Liberals finally accepted that they would not form government, if they have ever accepted that, but when they were uh, forced out. So we are now, we are in government. I have made a firm commitment that we are accelerating the, the four-laning of the Trans-Canada and we will be making sure that we can get on with it as soon as possible. I believe, Vaughn, that's some of the doublespeak that Gary was talking about right there. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, we know very well that there were all kinds of projects around the province that had been approved and started that were being built right through that interregnum period. Uh, Site C on the Peace River being the classic example where they were spending money and still are at the rate of two million bucks a day. So uh, it is possible to build stuff while uh, you're in the middle of the election period. It's true, I guess, if the final contracts haven't been signed, uh, that they might hold off on that. But uh, the minister is uh, a long way from accelerating this project. Uh, I think uh, more likely she's going to spend some time having to explain why it's behind schedule. And Gary, is this is this going to be the story? There's there are plenty of big projects scattered around the province. Uh, hospitals jump to mind immediately, uh, where the NDP are going to have to engage in in sort of this kind of um, uh, double speak, as you referred to, mm-hmm. to kind of put it off in order to kind of move money from one thing to another. Yeah, I think I think certainly that that that's going to happen, and it seems to me that uh, this isn't the first time we've heard uh, we've heard a minister in this government refer to the delay, you know, blaming the liberals for sort of dragging their feet to the inevitable uh, demise uh, in, in government, uh, you know, blaming that on a whole host of delays that we're that we're going to see here. But you know, I think there's something uh, important to keep in mind here. Like Vaughn mentioned, the fact that. The NDP doesn't have a lot of, uh, doesn't have any members, uh, MLAs in this area, and that that might be a reason behind it. But at, on the, the the flip side of that is is precisely that 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 they, you know, they have real problems in the rural parts of this of this province. So they have to be careful about kind of uh, targeting these areas uh, in, in terms of projects that they're not going to go ahead with. because They need to make gains in yeah. rural British Columbia. So they, they're going to have to start thinking the, the opposite way. What are we going to do to bolster our support in, in this area of the province, which, uh, which is miserable right now, let's, let's be honest. So uh, they, they're going to have to be very careful, and they're going to have to start uh, going ahead with projects and not canceling projects. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's talk about the Liberal leadership race. It went from uh, an empty ballot to what's probably going to be a crowded ballot by this time next week. Uh, Sam Sullivan jumping in officially, the first to do so. Diane Watts will do so on Sunday. Uh, and then Andrew Wilkinson Monday, followed by Mike Bernier on Monday as well. And then other names in the wings, of course, Todd Stone here in Kamloops and Mike DeYoung, who says he's going to make uh, his intentions known next week as well. Uh, Vaughn, uh, what can you read into that potential? field so far. Yeah, looking like a, a lot of candidates, uh, Rich Coleman, I think, saying as many as 10. Um, the, the thing I would say about it is that it suggests it's wide open. I don't think there's any obvious... Uh, Watts will get a lot of attention because she's from outside and she's a newcomer. She'll initially be seen as one of the front runners. But I think what you're really seeing here is that the Liberals um, don't have a lot of, you know, huge high profile candidates so they're not those people aren't crowding everyone out you've got a bunch of people that are going to take a flyer on it you put up ten thousand dollars you're in uh... to get the next phase of the campaign is a debate they start in the middle of october you have to put up another fifteen thousand to make it through the debates and then you got the end of the year to stay through to february when the actual vote takes place you have to put up another twenty five thousand dollars so i think you'll see a lot of people out just taking soundings and having a go and see if they get any attention. I doubt we'll have nine or ten candidates when we get to the new year. Yeah. Gary, what kind of challenges Diane Watts have in, I mean, she's really well known in Metro Vancouver, specifically Surrey, uh, south of the Fraser, not so much in the interior and the north, although she'll get some credibility being a conservative member of parliament. But does she have an uphill battle here? Well, I, I mean, I, I think her name counts for a lot. To be honest with you, I mean, she doesn't have a she doesn't have 
really any kind of connections with the Liberal Party, the BC Liberal Party itself. But she does have a lot of credibility uh, as a politician. I, I know that in the last leadership uh, race that Christy Clark ended up winning, Diane uh, Watts' name was mentioned repeatedly, and there was a lot of support for her to, to jump in the race. Uh, I mean, the Liberal Party, let's face it, they have come almost the opposite problem the NDP has. I mean, that they lost the last election primarily because they, the lack of support in Metro Vancouver. Um, she's a well-known commodity in Metro Vancouver, did a good job as the mayor of Surrey. So, I mean, she she does, definitely does have some assets from that perspective. And she's got name value, which, which counts for a lot. I mean, every candidate that you and Vaughn have mentioned so far have pluses and minuses. And uh, I, I think, I think as Vaughn says, you know, people are going to jump in and see if, if their campaign um, grabs, uh, gets some traction. Like Sam Sullivan's a classic example. He's kind of a throwing his name in there. He's got some kind of interesting ideas. You know, he's, he's even mentioned the HST, a modified HST. Mm-hmm. Um, so he may be in there just to throw some wa- ideas out there and, and just see if anything, uh, you know, catches on with the public, uh, c- catches people's imaginations. But, but it's, you know, early days. Uh, Vaughn, I was caught by uh, something you wrote this week about that uh, leadership event on the 29th. Uh, the party's been selling tickets for, uh, but uh, there's going to be no reporters in the room on that particular day. Yeah, I was talking to one of the New Democrats this week, and he was saying, you know, he said there's a big difference between the kind of leadership that the Liberals had in 2011, where the leader gets to be premier. There's huge media attention on that kind of a race. But he said this is more like the one the NDP had in 2011, where you get to be leader of the opposition, and the party is always looking for coverage. So I was kind of amused to see that uh, the very first event of the leadership campaign, this kind of forum for the candidates to show themselves off to the party brass and party donors, the media is excused. Um, I think the day will come this fall when the Liberals were wishing for more coverage. They might want to reflect on the wisdom of telling the media they're not welcome at the first event of the campaign. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, Gary, uh, in no small way does a leader sort of reflect on the party. Uh, in, in what way should this new leader or what character traits, uh, what changes should the new leader make that moves it away from things that, that Christy Clark did that perhaps uh, didn't go over so well? Well, I, I think, you know, the most, you know, when I think of the Liberal Party, certainly in the in the, the final years, last few couple of years under Clark, I mean, obviously they know how to, you know, uh, balance a budget. I think they, they kind of lost touch with people, though. I think that this government was kind of enveloped with an arrogance this uh, this feeling of invincibility um and and i think that they lost touch with people and and the and and the real concerns that people out there uh have in terms of meeting <laughs> putting food on the table and things like that that none of those you know people in the clark government really could relate to i mean they became so comfortable uh with power that they sort of lost touch with the people that uh, that put them there in the first place and so I, I think that that's going to be a big, big challenge for the next leader, is, is trying to find some sort of common touch with people uh, and a relatability to the, the issues that people, especially in Metro Vancouver, with the high cost of housing and everything uh, that comes with it, you know, that they understand those concerns. Because I think that was the primary reason that they sort of uh, blew it in Metro Vancouver, just and elsewhere in the province too, but but just this complete lack of relatability to the everyday person's uh, plight, right? Uh, 
precisely. Yeah, and I would I would agree with that and add that they they were overly enveloped in sort of partisan tunnel vision and, and sold on their own ideas to the extent of even when they were bad, they would never, ever back off of them unless they were absolutely crowbarred to do so. Uh, guys, uh, let's take a quick break here, and on the other side, we'll talk about the latest uh, preliminary report uh, from the BC Utilities Commission on the Site C Dam, right here on Inside Politics. More with Vaughn and Gary after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. And we're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Gary Mason. Guys, a preliminary BC Utilities Commission report on their very, very, very expedited review of the Site C Dam in the northern part of the province. Uh, Vaughn, what struck me about this thing is that from whatever the BCUC could tell, it is kind of on time and on budget, but man, that hangs by a thread. Yeah, that's true. There's, you know, this is a report where the conclusions, the findings, uh, there's 37 of them, and where the unanswered questions, there's 73 of them. So there's twice as many questions asked as questions answered. And, I mean, part of it, just the government gave them almost no time to do this, right? The, the Utilities Commission reviewed Site C in, in depth uh, 30 years ago. It took them two years. Uh, this time they had six weeks. So it's not surprising that they have a lot more questions. I guess what, what I would say is, uh, even with the best of intentions, how many definitive answers are you going to get by November the 1st, which is the day they have to send their final report in? Gary, uh, I mean, the big thing that is the, the bit the previous Liberal government in the behind was the not running it by the BCUC. But at this point, is the, is the timeline so rushed and so compact that, it, that it's almost useless? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's sort of the striking thing for me. It's just, I, I don't quite understand why this has to be rushed. Uh, such an important decision, such an, a, a potentially costly decision, and you're giving these people, you know, very, very little time to make what will be a monumental decision by this government. So I, I don't I don't quite understand it. I, I don't, you know, I mean, they're, they're going ahead with the works right now, um, but, uh, you know, you just look at those bottom line numbers. I mean, Bond spelled them out in his uh, column today. You know, $3 billion is the combined cost of the termination scenario. $3 billion. That is a hell of a lot of money. And uh, so, I, I, you know, I'm just kind of baffled by the, the timeline that this government has established around what will be maybe one of the biggest decisions that it, it makes in, the, in, its, uh, in its mandate. Vaughn, I was also struck uh, reading this report, the dearth of, of, of a lack of information. I mean, Hydro's two years into this thing, uh, and yet BCUC seemed to really be able to struggle to get Hydro to cough up any information on a variety of, Utah, of topics. As you mentioned, there's now more questions and answers than there was before. Yeah, a lot of the questions, Shane, involve the alternatives to Site C. I think because the Liberals decided to do this thing in 2014, and I think it was a political decision, uh, Hydro didn't spend as much time as it might have looking at wind power, uh, solar, geothermal. Those those don't necessarily stand alone. Uh, you need hydroelectric for when the sun's not shining and the wind isn't blowing. So it's a, it's a complicated question. But the commission basically accuses Hydro in assessing alternatives of playing apples and oranges. They're not being fair in how they assess those other projects. Um, So Hydro's got to answer for all that. But again, even if they come back with a lot better answers by November the 1st, 
the cabinet then sits down and makes the final call. And, you know, Hydro is spending two million bucks a day still building that project. And so they've got to decide to write all that off. And then they start looking at these alternatives. Well, the alternatives are great ideas, but you know in this province, Shane, that every geothermal project, every wind farm project, every solar panel array, every run-of-the-river project, every one of those is going to have opponents. It's going to have to have public hearings, environmental certificates, First Nations consultation, First Nations compensation, community input. How many years is it going to take to get equivalent number the equivalent amount of electrical generating capacity back on the ledger while you're putting Site C back the way you found it at the cost of a billion dollars and writing off $2 billion in hydro debt. Not to mention the startup costs of getting those alternative energy uh, timeline or uh, avenues online. Uh, Gary, you agree? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, <laughs> we have seen over the last 10 years a lot of, uh, of you know, projects uh, wind, certainly wind turbine projects. I, I think of uh, particularly that uh, you know uh, there, there's been releases out that this project's going to uh, go ahead and it doesn't go ahead, and there have been some that have started and failed. I mean, if it was easy and if it, if it made that much sense, um, you know, I think a lot of these projects would be would be flourishing today. Uh, but as Juan says, you know, it's it's just not as easy as just saying, yeah, okay, we're going to you know start up this solar uh, panel business or or whatever but you know it's it is interesting i just returned from um germany and poland and i'll I'll tell you something in germany particularly there are wind farms all over the place i mean they are really really ramping up uh wind energy in that country and it seems to be working i think i think i saw a a number the other day that by the end of uh, this decade they'll have 25 percent of their power come from uh wind turbines so i mean it is possible in the right environment uh but, you know, it, we're a long way from uh, being able to sort of match the, the power output that uh, Site C would generate with, uh, uh, you know, a collection of these other alternative uh, sources. Yeah, I would add that in Sweden and Denmark, who's huge on wind energy, uh, there have been days, and I mean, I'm just one day here and there over the last uh, couple of years where the wind's been so strong and they've powered the entire country just on the on the wind turbines. Uh, Vaughn, uh, last word to you on this. Uh, tension cracks, uh, river diversion, uh, are any of those going to be huge issues that knock this project off the rails? Uh, the interesting thing that they say in the report is that Hydro at the moment is trying to get the thing finished a year ahead of time by 2023, but the which is an ambitious scheme. But the problem they have, you just mentioned it, they've had geotechnical problems up there, big tension cracks that caused, in one case, a 10-week suspension of work on the north bank of the river. Uh, And there's a chance that they will not meet the deadline to divert the river, which is September 2019. If they miss that window because of the way the river works and everything else and seasons in British Columbia, they miss that deadline of doing it in September 2019, then they fall a year behind schedule. So this is a very tough decision that faces the cabinet. It is not going to be an easy one. And I don't know how many unknowns they're going to have on November the 1st, but as of today, they've still got a lot of unknowns. All right, uh, let's take a quick break, get caught up to the news to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, uh, more with Vaughn Palmer and Gary Mason as we talk about the government's move to ban union and corporate donations and uh, the uh, furor that ensued. Uh, More on Radio NL Inside Politics after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Keeping you informed from both sides. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Radio NL's Inside Politics with Shane Woodford. 
Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. We're talking to Gary Mason and Vaughn Palmer. The topic on this segment, uh, the the move to ban big money, the banning of union corporate donations uh, rolled out by the provincial government. Uh, but what caught a lot of people by surprise was that taxpayers are on the hook to some extent for the changes with millions of dollars of public money flowing to BC's political parties. Uh, Gary, you covered this story uh, top and bottom, side to side. Uh, what did you think of what the government tabled this week? Well, I mean, I have to, I have to be honest. I was, I was caught off guard by it as well because I had talked to some people ahead of uh, the, you know, a bill being <coughs> announced, and there, there had been no mention of the of the subsidies. Um, so, I mean, I think there's no question that uh, it, Horgan looks terrible on this, and it has uh, largely overshadowed what should have been a very good day for the government. Um, I guess my feeling is, uh, you know, it's it's not unheard of, you know, certainly for taxpayers to subsidize political parties in lieu of, uh, you know, uh, corporate and union donations and, and high individual spending limits. Uh, the federal government did it for a while. Yep. The Ontario government has implemented a, a very similar program. They have vowed to... Uh, uh, and in four years' time, um, uh, I just think that uh, the problem here is that Horgan had almost, you know, had had said he wasn't going to do it. In fact, he told you that, um, and then he went ahead and did it. So, and it's like uh, the first big broken promise of his, and it's it's largely, as they say, overshadowed. Which what is primarily a very very good bill uh, for the province. Yeah, have they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory on this thing, Vaughn? Yeah, I think. Uh particularly because of the way they handled it, right? I mean, Gary is... uh, They gave no indication this is what they were going to do. And they also... You know, I was in the press theater for this announcement. We're all sitting there, Shane, because you distributed what Horgan had... All reading that Horgan had said exactly the opposite about, about sticking taxpayers with the tab. He comes in with Weaver. They do little statements. Try to ask them a question about it. Neither one of them will take questions. They leave... E.B. comes in to answer questions. He will not address the issue with a broken promise. Uh, Horgan won't deal with it in the hallway, won't deal with it in the House. The New Democrats are, well, it's actually a performance worthy of Christy Clark. Her standard way of operating was, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about this, the wonderful things I've done. Doing the same thing. Look, Horgan made this really hard on himself because... He mocked the suggestion that they were going to be bringing in taxpayer money. He didn't just say, we're not going to do it. He laughed it off. He said, that's Christy Clark's disinformation. That's alternative facts. He laughed at reporters for even raising the question. So now he's done it, and he won't address the flip-flop. They went through the week, the New Democrats, trying to stick Weaver with the blame for this. Weaver has said the Greens don't need the money. Yes, they'll take it, but they don't need it. It wasn't their idea. Weaver's adamant about that. And Weaver pretty much told us where this came from. He said he thinks the NDP has a huge debt from the last election. They need the cash, and so they're going to start writing themselves a check. January the 1st, the NDP gets a million bucks. July 1st next year, the NDP gets a million bucks. They get six and a half, almost seven million dollars over the next four years. There's another thing here, too, which is interesting. Police, the Premier, EB, never mentioned that there's a second subsidy. You hear the New Democrats on this, Shane, they say, oh, this is just temporary, right? No, it isn't. The second subsidy is permanent. It's $11 million 
every election to the political parties to cover their campaign expenses. So as a handling of the issue, this bill has a lot of good things in it, but the way the New Democrats handled it has overshadowed a lot of that, created a political problem for them. Gary, the one thing that occurred to me on this is, is is it hypocritical from the Greens to take any of this money, considering uh, September from a year ago, uh, they went cold turkey on taking any union and corporate donations. Mind you, they weren't taking a bundle to begin with, uh, but they proudly stood up and said, listen, we are supported by individuals alone. They rubbed it in the face of all the other political parties, and then suddenly here they are taking big money again, albeit from taxpayers. Oh, no, no question about it. I mean, the self-righteousness that uh, has emanated from the Green Party on, on, this, on this particular issue is, is just unbelievable. And, and the fact that Weaver now is con- almost like condemning on the one hand, but is willing to take the money on the other, uh, it's, it's, kind of, it's a bit galling, to be honest with you. I think, you know, on this, on this issue, one of the other things, and, and Vaughn you know, has talked about this as well, you know, is, you know, Horgan keeps saying that this is, you know, this is going to end in four years, but there's, that's not what the release said. That's not, it says, you know, after five years, an all party committee of the legislature will review it. I think if he had said four years, this is it, it's over, this is in the bill, it's, it's, it will be terminated, people might have less of a problem with it. But, you know, he wasn't really, he wasn't even honest about that. You know, he was saying that it's going to end after four years, but that's not, in fact, what the bill says. Uh, and so I, I think there's some reconciling that still has to be done here. And uh, maybe they have to take another look at this bill. Maybe they have to make some amendments to it. You know, um, uh, you know, I don't know, to be perfectly honest with you, how much of an issue this is in the, in the broader public. I know there was a furor over it, you know, the, the first day or two. But, you know, if this dies down, I, I suspect that, you know, we're not going to hear much more about it. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how it resonates or not with the public. Uh, Vaughn, I know the B.C. Liberals have, have crapped all over this thing, especially uh, concerning the public money used, but uh, will they uh, say no to taking the funds? Well, there's an interesting possibility here. When Horton originally brought in his Get the Big Money Out of Politics bill, he dealt with the issue of public funding by saying he was going to send that and all the other issues of party financing to an independent commission headed by the chief electoral officer. That was actually in the bill that he tabled in the House earlier this year. So here's an interesting possibility. If we were serious about not taking the money and the Greens don't need it, and the Liberals are serious about voting against the money, what if they simply brought that proposal of Horgan's back into the House as an amendment to the bill. Let's send this issue out to an independent commission headed by the chief electoral officer, get some recommendations back, and in the meantime, the NDP will have to wait for its million-dollar check on January the 1st. I actually still think there's a way of dealing with this and cleaning it up in a fair way, and in a way that would keep the specific promise that Horgan made before the election. That is interesting. It'd be interesting to see if the Liberals just set it up and invite the Greens to the table and then sit back and make hay with it. Gary? Well, I mean, it's an interesting idea. However, I think the NDP would be furious with that because, I mean, the Greens signed off on it. I mean, they signed off on this bill before it was tabled. They knew what what it said, and they knew exactly what was coming. And for them now, because of, of, because of some public fear, mostly over... Horgan's flip-flop on the issue, uh, you know, that, that seems to be the primary thing here. You know, I think there's a lot of people that accept that, you know, some transitional funding 
isn't necessarily a bad thing if you know if you consider the the, the greater purpose here, which is to get big money out of out, out of politics. It, it, but people are furious with the way Horgan has handled this. But you know, having said all that, the Greens did sign off on this, and then mm-hmm. for them now to say, "Oh, well, actually, we kind of look bad on this, so maybe we're we'll team up with the Liberals to force an amendment." You know, it could happen. Vaughn, you know, Vaughn may be right, but uh, it it could certainly uh, create some. Uh, tensions and some <laughs> fractures in that relationship between the Greens and the NDP. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Vaughn, uh, last question uh, on this topic and, and to wrap up the segment. Uh, I was caught by Hamish Telford, who wrote an article in the province, basically looking at this whole issue and saying, well, here's a pretty perfect argument against proportional representation. You have one party running on an idea uh, during the campaign. We get into government. They enter into a coalition with another party. Suddenly, uh, we find out it's a whole other thing post-election and post-vote. Well, uh, yeah, good point, and we do have a referendum coming up next year, but I would add this is incredibly unfair to new political parties, too, because what's really happening here, Shane, is that the three established parties would have a cordon around them of taxpayer support. If you wanted to start a new political party, and we've had a lot of them in B.C. over the years, you wouldn't have access to this per-vote funding until after the next election. Hmm. So what what the established parties are doing is creating, if they all vote for this and take the money, a barrier to entry to new parties. I have to say, Gary, I think your newspaper got it right in an editorial this week. The political parties pretend that there are only two options on ethically large donations or feeding from government coffers. That is absurd. If political parties can't find cash, that's their problem, not the public's problem. Parties should go to work, raise their own money, and leave taxpayers out of it. Last word to you, Mr. Mason. Well, you know, I, I, I think on this one, maybe Vaughn and I disagree a little bit. I, I, I don't have a problem with a short-term transitional funding allowance uh, as long as it's, it's short-term and it's, it's not a permanent uh, uh, you know, fixture. Um, but beyond that, I, I agree. Then, then you have to let the parties you know, uh, finance themselves and live on their, their, you know, exist on their own two feet. So I kind of uh, <laughs> I got a leg in both camps, actually. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're out of time, but uh, thank you so much for both of you for your insight. Uh, always appreciate it. Gary Vaughn? Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye, Shane. See you, Vaughn. All right, that's Gary Mason from the Globe and Mail, Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Always interesting to hear what they have to say. We're going to take a quick break here on Inside Politics. On the other side, uh, Sean Holman joins us for what will be an interesting segment on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in. Pleasure to be joined on the line now by Mount Royal journalism professor and, of course, freedom of information expert, well-known to BC Paul. He is the man behind uh, Public Eye Online when he hailed from Victoria, Sean Holman. Sean, how are you? Not too bad. How are you doing, Shane? Good. Uh, Great to hear your voice. I know you're, uh, I think you're probably still in Vancouver, correct? I am still in Vancouver. I was uh, invited to attend a conference. It is Right to Know Week next week, and I am a Freedom of Information researcher, as you mentioned, so I was speaking at that conference, and a lot to talk about these days. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, First off the hop, it must have uh, been something you kept a careful eye on as BC's Freedom of Information and Privacy Commissioner unveiled uh, the results of a look into how the province has been complying with FOI requests, a shocking uh, rate of, of not being on time, uh, basically one in four requests, not within the time frame laid out in legislation, 
36% surge in the amount of time it takes to respond to overdue files, uh, going from 47 days three years ago to 62 days last year. Uh, I imagine this is, is incredibly concerning. It is concerning, but I think that we might be focusing on the wrong thing here. So the commissioner's report was entitled Timeliness is Everything. I don't think it's everything. Um, I think equally important, and in some ways perhaps more important, is just how much information we get out of those requests. Mm -hmm. Are British Columbians, our Canadians, actually getting access to the information that they are asking for. And, of course, if that information doesn't arrive on time, then, as many have said, access delayed is access denied. Um, but there are a whole number of various different loopholes in our freedom of information law, both at the federal and at the provincial level, that thwart our right to know why government is doing the things it's doing in our name and with our money. So how do we go about addressing that? Because the, the Privacy Commissioner obviously wants full compliance with the legislation, but if there's loopholes in the legislation itself, perhaps it needs to be taken a step further. Yeah, I think it does need to be taken a step further. I mean, it is important, obviously, that the government makes every attempt it can to follow the law. That seems pretty basic. But I think we need to go much deeper than just ensuring compliance with the legislation. And I think we actually need to go much deeper than just reforming our freedom of information laws, both in British Columbia and at a Canadian level. The major problem in Canada when it comes to openness, and I'm going crib from a phrase by Justin Trudeau, is that we don't have open by default government. What we have is we have secret by default government. If you really think about the way in which our government system operates, for example, cabinet, it is all set up around the idea of secretive decision making. So freedom of information laws, which are designed to ensure openness, are almost like transplanted organs that are constantly at risk of being rejected by the very way in which our system fundamentally functions. And we need to talk a lot more about that in this country. Sean, how, how big a role does technology play in all of this? I mean, a couple of decades ago, uh, information was contained in, in documents or maybe certain computer files, and that was kind of it within government. Now we've got social media. Uh, we've got uh, you know a bevy of email accounts that are available to any one person, no matter what their job is. Uh, the list goes on and on. How information is shared has radically changed. It is, and that makes record-keeping by government a bit more challenging than it used to be. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, I think the increased availability of information outside of government also creates an increased expectation on the part of the public that they are going to have access to information, and they should be right in that expectation. That expectation should be fulfilled by government, and right now it's not being fulfilled. So how do we separate 
making sure that information is 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 on the record, is protected properly, is disseminated properly, that there's no loopholes. When we have, in the case of former Premier Christy Clark, who stood up and said, uh, quote, and I'm quoting here, she's going to have the most open, transparent government in the yeah. country. And then years later, as of this week, we get a report that shows that that is anything but. So how do we take the, the politics out of it so it doesn't matter who the government of the day is, that there's a system in place that, that, that does what it's supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. I think the first thing we need to recognize is changing the political party that is running government is not necessarily going to make government more open. Indeed, we have substantive track records across the country with parties on both the left, right, and in the center that proves that most political parties do not live up to their promises when it comes to openness. Stephen Harper, for example, before he became prime minister, promised to reform the Access to Information Act. He never did. Um, So the list could go on. So I think that's one important point. Recognize that this is not a problem with particular politicians or specific parties. It is a problem with all politicians and all parties. Mm. And then secondly, the other issue is, if it's not a problem with all with the politicians and political parties, then that must mean it's a problem with our system. And that's what we really need to talk about, going back to the first point that I made. We really need to think about how our very system of government discourages transparency and what we can do to change that system of government. It's an uncomfortable conversation for us to have. And in part, that's because we can't imagine anything different than what we've got right now. But I think that failure of imagination is holding us back from being a true democracy and a truly open society. Uh, we only got a few minutes left. I did want to kind of change the tangent of this just a little bit because one of the things that, that also is involved with our democracy is uh, who is contributing to our political parties and who might have a say in, in bending or shaping policy. And this week, uh, and I know you've covered this in the past from your time in Victoria this week, we had a move by the provincial government to ban union and corporate donations, albeit with some public money uh, to, funneled in to do so. So, Sean, what did you think of, of that change? Um, I think it's a positive change, but I think we also need to recognize its limitations. First limitation is that, in some ways, this might make it more difficult to figure out who is influencing political parties. Previously, we would be able to point to corporations and unions, and we would be able to point to huge, big donations. In some ways... The change that has been made is going to make that process a lot more difficult. (laughs) Secondly, I think in addition to this change, which overall I support, aside from the caveat that I just mentioned, secondly, I think we need to have much greater disclosure requirements on the part of political parties. They are essentially quasi-public bodies, and we need to know a lot more about what is going on inside them. For example, I think a really good idea would be to require the disclosure of all of the various different party officials, both staff and at the constituency level. That way we can see who exactly is influencing things within a particular political party. And right now we don't have that right, and a lot of parties make sure we never know that information. I guess my last question here, how much of that also has to do, we focus on campaign financing with the, with the emphasis on campaign, but how much does the, the dark money aspect, that's the fundraising that political parties do outside of a campaign uh, for the three and three quarters of a year that they're not actually in electioneering mode? 
Well, to be clear, um, the reports that are now made by each individual political party, um, those include disclosures of campaign contributions both during an election and also between elections. So we are getting the full scope, right, when it comes to what money is actually going into provincial political parties. Um, So I don't think that's as much of a problem. Um, But as I say, I think what a, a deeper problem is, is just the lack of disclosure in some other areas, right? How the party is functioning. And we could be much better in terms of disclosure of actual financing as well. Um, you know, it might be reasonable to ensure that the public has right to know who exactly was at a fundraiser in addition to how much money was donated at a fundraiser. Absolutely. Sean, we're out of time, but thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. It was uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Sean Holman, uh, professor at Mount Royal uh, University in Calgary, a professor of journalism, also a freedom of information expert, uh, and again, as I mentioned, well-known as the man behind Public Eye Online when he worked out of Victoria. Always a pleasure to talk to Sean. Thank you for listening to the show this week. We'll have more on Inside Politics right here on NL next Friday. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.